High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. A man and a woman shot dead in Ballymun, both, as best we can understand it, innocents. A mother of six, six children, uh, m- motherless. A, a toddler in the arms, apparently, of the intended victim uh, escapes death by a miracle. Now, if this were an isolated incident, there mightn't be much point in me talking about it, but I really need your help here. Uh, because shootings on the streets of Dublin are now mundane. And uh, Charlie Flanagan, the Minister for Justice, says, oh, it's unacceptable. In fact, he said it was totally unacceptable. Totally unacceptable, but what? Here is Fine Gael, the party since its foundation, the party of law and order, and they are sitting on their hands as this city in particular is reduced to anarchy. Now, the only thing is, it's only reduced to anarchy in certain areas. Would Fine Gael, and indeed Fianna Fáil, get off their butts if the uh, people who live in Leafy Fox Rock or uh, the shoreline of Sandymount or Dundrum or Donnybrook, if shootings were taking place on a regular basis in those districts, would Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil do something about it? They absolutely would. The other thing, of course, that Minister for Justice Charlie Flanagan says, the Gardaí are facing up to this problem and they're going to do something about it. How can a totally discredited force do something about it? One thing we're absolutely certain about is that morale in the Garda Shia in the rank and file of the Garda Shia good men and women who put their lives at risk every single day without proper equipment uh, to safeguard them, they are led by people in whom they and us have no confidence. How in the name of all that is good and holy can a commissioner hold down her job when there is financial jiggery-pokery in the training college, when there is fake uh, breath tests being put out for alcohol, when findings uh, and charges for speeding are nonsense and the courts will be clogged up for years to come with people taking actions in in relation to to false ones and now uh, killings in our streets. The Minister for Justice should actually resign. Because that's what would happen, I suggest, in any democracy. If this was an isolated shooting in Ballymun, you'd say, fine. This has been going on since there was a guest on this program, who we're going to hear him later on, Michael McDool. When Michael McDool was in government, he actually suggested, and I'm sure in a phrase he deeply regrets, the last sting of a dying wasp. Instead of the last thing of a wasp, we are now seeing wasps procreating uh, at a rate of knots. So can we, can a commissioner of the Gardaí stand there and say, my force can tackle this? Can a minister for justice say, 
in this government, the we, the government, we, Fine Gael, the party of law and order, are going to do something about this. It's interesting who represents the people of Ballymun, where the latest killings take place. No rock of Fine Gael. Uh, well, you know, Fine Gael will do nothing about it. Then, Roisin Shortall, good left-winger and all. I think Roisin Shortall should be in the street today. And then, finally, Desi Ellis of Sinn Féin. I think Sinn Féin's hands are tied. They come to any kind of killing with not a clear escutcheon. They, whether they or, or others, Sinn Féin, still in its DNA, is descended from shootings and killings of innocent people in Northern Ireland. So it's only the government we can depend on in this case, and they have let us down. As there are shootings in the streets in Dublin, where is the Taoiseach? The Taoiseach is comparing socks and early morning runs with the Prime Minister of Canada. In fact, it, it should be cancelled. All Everything should be cancelled. The doll should be recalled. So I here's what I want. I need your help. Which is worse? Paying for water? So is Deputy Paul Murphy, uh, Richard Boyd Barrett, Mick Barry and others who march down the street to pay him for water? Are they going to organise a march against the killing of innocents? Is homelessness worse? Is Ruth Coppinger and others going to organise a march down the streets against the killing of innocents? Or is homelessness more important? Or is getting a mortgage more important than the killing of innocents in the streets? You tell me. Because it appears to be the case in this benighted island of saints and scholars. The News Talk app is News Talk in your pocket. Download it now. Well, uh, I'm joined now by Ben Hamilton Bailey, who is an urban designer, and he joins me to say that traffic rules don't make roads chaotic. Uh, ben, welcome to the programme. Good afternoon. With Good that afternoon. interesting suggestion that we turn yes. off the traffic lights, uh, get rid of the double yellow lines, no cycle lanes, uh, no crossings for pedestrians. How's it going to work? Well, it's not quite as simple as that. Uh, crossings for pedestrians are pretty important. But um, what we have found is that um, the, the uh, on certain occasions you can take uh, a lot of the clutter from the streets, particularly traffic signals and road markings and guardrails and signs, out, uh, and that uh, streets and their uh, and their and pedestrians uh, can move more easily and and more safely. It's uh, it's often a bit counterintuitive, but what we do is to try and uh, find ways to improve the overall relationship of traffic to towns and to cope with the inevitable movement of vehicles, and to do so by bringing speeds right down and changing the way the, ex the expectations and the confidence that drivers have of speeding around cities. 
Well, obviously the traffic lights are out of order behind you there as we hear uh, the ambulance <laughs> trying to get through. Um, now, hold a while here now, Ben. Um, the first thing is you want to bring the speeds right down. Um, you want to bring them to levels, presumably, of the invention of the um, internal combustion engine by having a man with a red flag walking in front of them. No, no, no. It depends on the context, of course. I mean, if you're driving in uh, past a uh, primary school, that's uh, when the children are coming in or coming out, clearly speeds need to be extremely low at other times of day or in other circumstances. It can vary. But um, what the removal of uh, traffic signals can do is to improve the degree to which drivers are aware of and respond to their surroundings. So you, you create much more forgiving streets. So if somebody makes a mistake, it's not fatal, and that um, pedestrians are able, and, and indeed cyclists are able, to uh, accommodate and, and cope with traffic movement okay. much more safely. Now, it's really interesting uh, that you, 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 uh, the motor car uh, you, appears to be the, the uh, object of your, your, uh, your plan here um, uh, on the basis that now you are talking, of course, to the patron saint of motor cars here in me. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, then yeah. what you are assuming, it seems to me, is that you are assuming that the three components of traffic the, the the driver, the cyclist, and the pedestrian will work together and respect each other. That's what you're assuming. Well, indeed, and this isn't a theoretical model. It's been used in uh, all over in, in in many places in the UK, many places in mainland uh, Europe. So it isn't as if we're uh, we're, we're really guessing this. We can observe it in a example like a little town called Poynton in Cheshire. This is a crossroads town that carries 27,000 vehicles a day, huge volumes. And uh, by taking out the traffic signals, uh, we were able to improve journey times, so reduce congestion, as well as dramatically increase the number okay. of people uh, crossing this, uh, this okay. junction and, and restore the high street okay. as a result. All right, great. What country uh, that do you know where it hasn't been tried? Can I give you well, a clue? Can I, I give you a clue? I, I, it's difficult for me because I, I don't have enough time to travel the whole world. No, but, but I've not seen many examples in the um, in the Republic of Ireland. I don't thank know. Thank you. Well done. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Although there has been some interest in this from a number of right. uh, highway authorities. Okay. But Why no. do you think it hasn't been trialed in Ireland? Well, that's an interesting question, and uh, it, it clearly uh, requires um, uh, a, 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 a motivation to, to try to innovate in this field. Now, um, I, I, I mean, tell you why. I, I, the Republic of Ireland has been slightly le has a slightly less history of, of heavy congestion, heavy motorisation uh, than the rest of the of, of the British Isles and and, and the UK. Uh, but I think that most countries are finding that conventional highway engineering, traffic, more traffic signals, more signs, more lines, more uh, speed cameras, whatever it is, is not really improving the civility of 
okay. traffic and drivers in town. All right. The reason it hasn't been trialed in Ireland is because it wouldn't work, because the Irish simply would not obey any kind of rule. Right? Oh, like, absolute nonsense. It is absolute nonsense. No. The Irish are the most civilized and courteous people uh, imaginable, and they're nothing like the interaction and charm. Uh, and everywhere I go, every new country, people say, oh, it wouldn't work here in Denmark or Germany or Holland because we're so aggressive and, and, and so on. It's nonsense. Humans are the same the world over. No, Whether you're in, not, in, no. the, in the jungles of, of, of South America or in the skyscrapers of Manhattan. Humans uh, love interacting with one another, and that's why we have cities in the first place. There's really no reason why the same principles couldn't apply in the Republic of Ireland as in any other, any other part of the world. <laughs> so there you are. <laughs> well, I mean, you can continue to labor uh, in your comfortable cloud where nice people exist on the road. They just don't in this country, whether they are drivers, cyclists, or pedestrians. I mean, it's really interesting, Ben, because, I mean, no, 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 Ben, it's really interesting. Like, you're an urban designer, and you've studied many of the countries who've tried to do this, Okay. Now, if you take a country where the car, where the motor car is king, the USA, mm -hmm. nobody, you would agree, no pedestrian will cross the road in America without crossing at an authorized crossing, uh, and uh, where the lights go on. Or well, you haven't spent a lot of time in the small towns of New England and Vermont and New Hampshire. Sorry, I lived there. I lived there. I lived <laughs> there. In New England. I lived in New England. I lived in New England. When I was young, I, I used to spend a lot of my holidays in Southern Ireland, and it was before the days that there were many traffic signals. And you often used to find uh, junctions where a couple of farmers with their tractors would... Uh, would uh, would meet each other at a at a crossroads or a junction, and they'd stop, spend the, spend ten minutes chatting about the weather and the crops and grumbling about this and that, and the, the traffic behind would wouldn't mind. They'd turn off their engines and wait and then move on when in in due course. But when you introduce traffic signals, you give drivers the expectation that. We have a right to move here, and people get angry and frustrated. But, uh, and you, angry and frustrated right. drivers are okay. very dangerous. All right, but you didn't allow me finish in relation right. to America. <laughs> in in America, jaywalking is an offence. Absolutely. In in the state of California, if a cyclist stops at a traffic light and does not put one foot completely on the ground, mm. Mm. Um, yep. they, the fine is one hundred and fifty dollars. Americans have a very high pedestrian casualty rate, All much right, higher the than the, than the UK it? or the rest All of right. Europe. The third point is that when you park uh, on the road in America, you can only park in the direction you are travelling. So, in other mm. words, you you haven't got all these motor cars trying to do U-turns because they want to go back to where they mm. came from or whatever. Mm. Now, all I'm saying is that the Americans... good or bad? Well, what I'm saying is the Americans tend to observe the rules. Mm. We don't... So you don't. have very much higher casualties well, than uh, Our view of double yellow lines is that this is a really good place to park because there's nobody else parking there. Mm. 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 No, uh, whenever, I, whenever I get hundreds of calls, and literally hundreds of calls from village communities uh, up and down the country are trying to cope with uh, their number one concern, which is the volume and speed of traffic. And the simplest and cheapest response is not a load of traffic calming or more cameras or speed limits or any of that stuff, is to encourage people to walk in the road whenever they can. 
to spend as much time in the middle of the carriageway. Don't get in the way of cars, because that would be stupid, but stay there long enough that drivers have to, there has to be a briefest of interaction to allow people to move forward. So the much, as much time uh, spent in the carriageway, as much jaywalking as you possibly can, improves safety in towns and cities. I'm delighted to hear it. Thank, <laughs> you. Thank you so much for joining me. Ben My Hamilton pleasure. Bailey, Urban Designer. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. All right, welcome back to High Noon. It's interesting that you're more excited about traffic lights than you are about innocents getting shot in Ballymun. But, um, Michael, uh, the, the, um, I like the text which says, who is inspiring this demented project of replacing all roundabouts in Dublin with traffic lights intersections? Demented is right. Um, the uh, Hugh in Dublin says we more need more investment, not just in, pol- in policing, but in, prevent- in tackling the root cause um, and then finally, Finnegan has it in its DNA. Says Peter and Loud, the Do Nothing Party. Um, well, we have a Do Nothing government, that's for sure. Um, on any uh, topic you care to mention, I'm going to be interested to hear the Minister for Sport today talking about the Olympics. But I'm much more concerned when Eamon Ryan comes in to me, he, the leader of the uh, Green Party, and he says he doesn't want to talk about bicycles. Uh, Eamon Ryan, welcome to the programme. No, when I said when I came in here, off the record, and I, before the, <laughs> it's I agreed, on the record I agreed with every single thing that that previous <laughs> contributor had said. I was with them 100%. Were well, you? Yeah. I agree no traffic lights would work, in your opinion, would it? I, I don't want to spend we, too long on this now. What I was here saying is, is may put, this, put, put the pedestrian first at the centre of our traffic management system and design for the pedestrian first and foremost, not motorists. I think that's the way to go. Okay. China. Why are you so exercised about China? Not exercise. I suppose it was a big story earlier this week. The Chinese government had come out saying that they're not going to take in any uh, recycled materials where it's not properly separated, It's where it's con- contaminated, be that paper or plastic or metal. Um, it's part of a wider story. I mean, and I think it's a welcome development. Firstly, I think we are increasingly in a globalised system of trade. Trade is still growing globally, despite the economic downturn. In the last five years, about 3.5% a year trade is growing. Typically, what's happening is China is manufacturing goods, sending to us in containers. They're unpacked in Dublin Port, and we're sending the container back with our paper and plastic and other waste material. Um, we have had a problem with that. There's a whole variety of problems. First problem, problem, problem is in China, where the environmental consequences of lack of regulation of that has been immense. And that's now probably one of the biggest issues so for Chinese government. So what are they government. doing with it? They started back in 2013 of clamping down and saying, we will not take contaminated waste. We will improve right. the quality of waste coming to us. They had an operation, Operation Green Fence, it was called. And, and it started to say, you've got to make sure that any recycled material coming is properly segregated, properly sorted. An example of that occurred earlier this year, late last year. There were 160 containers left Ireland en route to China. It was stopped in the port of Rotterdam where about 110 of them had this mix of what was meant to be just paper recycling actually had plastic mixed in and they sent them back to Ireland because um, because the Chinese won't take it anymore. Okay, so it, it, like it's easy to say 
160 containers were sent from Ireland, but who's sending them now? Because there, there is a responsibility on the people. Like, what this seems to say is that in Ireland, we are sending recyclable waste. I don't care where we send it, China or where we send it, that isn't properly sorted. Now, lovely Ingrid, who, you know, is a mm. woman after your own heart, mm. who divides everything up amongst bins and does all that sort of stuff. She carefully ensures that non-contaminated stuff goes into the green bin. Yeah, and uh, and that's what we need to do. Uh, that I mean, it's hard to. I don't know the exact details. I, I presume it's subject to a not a, yeah criminal investigation in terms of how did it slip through the net. What typically happens is the green bin is brought by the waste company to their sorting centre. They put they dip it, tip tip it out into a conveyor belt and they sift out the various different materials, and then it goes to shipping. It goes through the National Transportation Shipment Office, which is kind of responsible for making sure that whatever leaves the country is properly segregated and sorted. Whatever happened on that shipment, it slipped through the net. And that's not unusual. The, when the Chinese started to crack down on this, they, they it was a lot of... Typically what's happening with the waste, the, where the world is going, is that it's coming from the developed world. We send them machines, capital machinery, and we send them our waste, and we buy their cheap goods. Um, and uh, there was, I think, about when they started, the Japanese Chinese started cracking down back in 2013. I think from America alone, they opened up about 20,000 containers, which they sent back. All right, so. but hold a minute here, like, particularly as a leader of the Green Party, mm. doesn't it strike you, I'm not sure what word you use, but it certainly strikes me as quaint, that there's all this talk about recycling in Ireland and mm. all this sort of stuff, and rightly so, mm. and then the first thing we do with it is to give it to somebody else. The problem, uh, should we not deal with the problem then? And that's why I think I, I think it's welcome what the Chinese are doing in terms of starting to impose proper environmental standards in their own country. And I think, and they're doing it because, as I said, in their country, that's the biggest issue. It's the huge political protest because in cities like Beijing, you can't see the hand in front of your face because of the air pollution. They're seeing issues around heart conditions, other medical conditions because their waters are polluted, because their air is polluted. And so I think it's right that they're clamping down. And the reason they are, someone explained to me once and kind of put it in this way, like you have to remember in China, if you're a grandparent, typically you might have four grandparents who might have only one grandchild. Mm. So you're worried about the environment that that one child, your press genes have only got one outlet. Uh, And so there's a real political force in China now towards higher environmental standards. The benefit for us in that is that we may see a shift back towards actually developing industries here for recycling and actually keeping resources here. So we're not just shipping stuff backwards and forth across the world. Why don't we send all the containers down to Sandyman? There's a perfectly good thing in place down there just burn it all. I don't think burning it is... But it's is there. This, yeah, but it, it is, unfortunately, and, and I think it was it is a mistake. It's about 20 years out of date when it was forced through um, by, the, by uh, the then government at the time against the wishes of the council. And I think actually, if you look what's now 20 years on, what we were saying 20 years ago is proving to be the case. Europe, at the, at the time, no doubt, I think it was Minister saying, oh, we have to do this. Europe is saying that you know, burning waste is the way to go. We said, no, it's not. It's going to be towards a more circular economy. And that's what Europe is saying now, actually, that Europe kind of waking up to this wider thing that we're shipping everything over to China and we're buying everything in from China. That's not in the long-term interests of Europe. We have to have a circular economy where we reduce the amount of resources we use, where we reuse things and recycle them. And I think that's not burning it. That's actually designing our manufacturing systems and our waste systems and our retail systems so we don't use as much material. So the material we do use, we recycle here. All right. 
But there will be another, will there not, be another third world economy? This time it's not China. China may not be third world, but you know what I mean. Okay. So suddenly India says, listen, why don't you send it to us? Or Zanzibar says, why don't you send it to Vietnam us? Vietnam or Indonesia or Malaysia yeah. is where it's yeah. going. Yeah, no, that's why I think ultimately in this globalised world, I mean, there are various responses you can do. One would be the kind of Brexit-Trump response, which is nationalist populists and saying we're retreating back to our own borders, everything American uh, and affect the rest of the world. Or, or the other is you actually start working on collective standards so that there isn't a bolt hole, there isn't a, a kind of an opt-out option in terms of where where the environment is not considered. But if you're in a country, and, and I'm not an expert in this, but, but we can take sort of hypothetical examples because we know there are a ton of countries. I mean, mm. so I was just looking recently at, at sort of Kenya because mm. they've got they've got elections coming up, mm. right? And and people are living on the proverbial sort of uh, dollar a day yeah. type of life. Now, if you suddenly come along to somebody and say, "Listen, uh, Dublin's going to send us over a ton of stuff, and we you'll get two dollars a day." Then the person says, that's a great idea. Let's have more of it. You're right. You're right. Yeah. You know, Africa is going to grow in terms of population. All the projections in terms of where the yeah. growth is going to come. Africa is going to be the largest growing continent. And we have to get the development of Africa right. It's not impossible that we actually achieve the twin objectives of maintaining our environment, maintaining the economy, but also lifting people out of poverty. I mean, in the last, the, the Millennium Development Goals, if you remember them, George, they, they set out this ambition of reducing the number of people who are on that level below $1 a day. Actually, we achieved a lot of the objectives, largely because countries like China and India actually came out of poverty. It's not all yeah, bad. That's right. And, and I think we have to do something similar in Africa. But what we have to do is do that in a way that doesn't threaten the environment and maintain certain standards. One of the changes that's occurred, and it was actually negotiated by an Irish civil servant, David O'Donoghue, in the United Nations in September 2015, we agreed the new Sustainable Development Goals. And they're significant for a variety of reasons. Firstly, they set out 17 measures of success, and it is based around social justice, as well as environmental justice, as well as economic development. And, tr and critically, it was about a map or a manifesto for the developed world, as well as the developing world. This is not just all about how do we look after Kenya. You know, it has to be how do we manage our own continent? How do we manage our own yeah. economy so that we meet this this big objective for the 21st century is that we won't, don't trip up uh, and lose either economic development or environmental right. uh, stability mm -hmm. and ultimately the inability to feed and house and what provide water for the 9 billion people that are going to be on right. the planet. Noreen wrote to you, but the letter obviously got lost in all the congratulatory letters you get every day, <laughs> but I'll ask you now. Noreen says, isn't there a contradiction between using pure water, which costs us a lot of money to, to prepare, that we then have to do that to create uh, non-contaminated waste to go into the green bin? So I explain that you have to wash them. Well, you, you know, do, don't you? you? What do you do with your yogurt cart you or whatever the heck it is? No, we should, wash be, it. we should be washing. Yeah, no, we should put in plastics which are not contaminated by food. That's so you one have of to the wash examples. it? Yes, you do. And you're using uh, water that nobody wants to pay for, but it's costly. But there's also in the, in the manufacturing of the plastics, there's a huge amount of water used as well. There are plastics. The, one of the problems is, one of the reasons why we, we have a difficulty with plastics at the moment is plastics are actually relatively cheap. In 
in terms of because they're largely made up of oil and natural gas in in the manufacturing of them, and and it's roughly the environmental cost is half in the manufacturing and half in the actual source materials. And one of the reasons why we've used so much plastic now is oil's come down in price and natural gas has come down in price. But there's an environmental cost for that. There's for every kilogram of plastic we're creating, there's six kilograms of of carbon dioxide emitted to the atmosphere, and also a huge amount of water used in the process. So I think it don't worry that moment, uh, Noreen, is it? Um, you wash the stuff out because that actually is still a more oh, environmentally better, efficient right, better okay, way. Now we've answered a question for you, which is great. Um, uh, they, what about this though? Your, I think it was John Gormley, your predecessor, was mm-hmm, he? Yeah. yeah. When he was in government with you, mm-hmm. the, the, there was a lot of discussion that all this green ideas, not necessarily Green Party, but mm-hmm. the whole green yeah. ideas and climate change and all this sort of stuff, there was going to be an enormous cost. And I can remember Andy Kennedy saying, and I'm sure you do, mm-hmm. that we're all in favour of climate change, but just not yet. Wasn't that right? Uh, roughly speaking, that's mm-hmm. what he said. Wasn't that right? Yeah. We made we made our um, submission to the Citizens Assembly. They're going to look at the issue of climate change next month. And actually, they've advanced it up the agenda. It was meant to be the fifth item of the, the items they're looking yeah. at. They wanted to make bring it further forward. And one of the messages... That's assuming that climate change is correct. Well, no, George. Unfortunately, I wish. Last month was the war- warmest month ever in human recorded history. There's no doubt now about the science of climate change. It, it, it is indisputable. Well, there's a um, very distinguished professor I was reading last week, because since I met you, I've got very interested in climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talked about that volcano in Iceland, for instance, mm-hmm. that, that blew. And he said that that volcano negated about 20 years of effort uh, to, to uh, reduce climate change. There's also complexities in the system, the scientific system, and volcano or, or volcanic activity yeah. will affect it. But all the modelling, all the scientific expertise we have is saying the one thing, we are at an eminent risk of destroying the habit habitable nature of our planet if we don't actually reduce our greenhouse emissions. But just to, the point I wanted to make, we made a submission to the Citizens' yeah, Assembly sorry. in terms of how they'd look at that. And the central message that I made, or we made in our submission, is actually we need to do this not just because it's the environmental right thing to do, but also because it is an economic opportunity for this country. It's actually a better economy, one that's less wasteful, that's more efficient, that's cleaner, that's more socially just, is achievable. And for us to opt out of this clean industrial revolution that is taking place, and you see it taking place across the world now is and Donald Trump won't stop it you can't stop it because it's a better system like he ain't going to stop the American motor industry going electric because they know that if they don't do it we're all going to be buying Chinese and German and other electric yeah. vehicles not American cars and it's the same across a whole range of different industries so for Ireland I mean, Ireland a country that missed out on the first industrial revolution and the huge cost to our people for 150 years we Why missed out on the second industrial revolution when we were not pa- part of the the master plan uh, after World War II, uh, the Marshall Plan, we no. didn't get any money for that either. No, we didn't. And, and, and so why would we miss out this time? Yeah. We, we made a strategic decision back in the late 50s because we realised we'd got it wrong. We realised that we were losing out. And we made a strategic decision that we were going to be an open economy connected to the world, at the centre of the world. Leo Brad Kotishuk said in his Time Life interview last week, we should be at the centre of the world. Well, now, the world is going green. And it's not just Green Party people saying that, it's it's across the board. And for us as a country... There's a lot of people not saying that, though. Who? I mean, who? 
Well, there's a ton of people. My email box is full of it every day of people who disagree. I'm only saying it's not universal, whether it's the professor fellow, whose no. name I can't remember, who said the Icelandic volcano did more damage to the environment than 20 years of thing. Nobody is telling Michael O'Leary to stop flying aeroplanes, no. even though uh, he's creating huge damage to the environment. Well, aeroplanes are. Yeah, we have to manage this. And like George Monbiot, who you're very familiar, who's mm -hmm. even greener than you, if that's possible. Mm -hmm. uh, George Monbiot will not fly. He makes mm -hmm. a, a personal effort to, in terms of the environment, which I admire him greatly for that. But it's because what aeroplanes do. Now, you can't mm -hmm. seriously suggest to everybody, take the boat, even no, though George Monbiot and takes the and boat. And shipping emissions also count. Like, all the ships <laughs> going to and from China are actually causing a lot of emissions as well. Ah, well so we, what do you want? We, need, we want to manage the entire system where we stabilise our climate, where we feed and provide security and stable homes for the 9 billion people we know are going to be in this planet. And we maintain a better economy, which is more just and fair. It's the transition to this clean economy gives us the opportunity to do that. Ireland is best place to do it. We actually are very, have huge advantages, have huge opportunities. We have access to water, clean water. We have a very large and a very good growing climate and a very small um, population relative to our, to our land. And we have a really good workforce and a high tech industry that actually can be low carbon. Yeah. So for us, this is an opportunity. We should grasp it. And including at the centre of that, reducing the amount of things we waste, because that does make sense for anyone. Uh, you'll have to buy me. I'm short on coffee today. You'll have to buy me a couple of coffees and persuade me that climate change is real. Uh, the leader of the Green Party, Eamon Ryan. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. I'm joined now on the telephone by uh, the independent member of Shannon Dern, uh, Michael McDool. Senator McDool, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Um, your article in uh, the Sunday Business Post was, I, I think, really interesting for, for somebody of my generation because what you're suggesting is that this younger generation may be the first to believe that things are not going to be better for them than their parents. And I would suggest probably no generation in the history of the state has felt that way. No, I think it is uh, the first time uh, I, I, I refer to it as a potential tipping point for Ireland and that we're sleepwalking towards it. That um, this generation, you know, the under 35 are looking around at them and uh, thinking about, you know, the fact that our generation, George, were able to buy homes and, and, uh, and to live in them and to uh, sort of um, establish a kind of a, an economic base. Many, many young people now are sort of looking around and saying, will I be renting for the rest of my life? Will I be gouged by high rental costs for the rest of my life? Uh, will I ever own anything? Will I ever own a secure home? Will I be liable to be evicted after three or four years or whatever? And um, these are the kind of thoughts which I think are percolating uh, through the uh, under 35 generation now. But what does a tipping point mean? Does a tipping point in your language mean that we're going to see a sea change in perhaps the way politics is run in this country? That we're going to see like that new politics that we now see where we have a completely disjointed uh, house of, uh, of, uh, in Dáil Éireann, that that's the future? Well, I think um, when, I, when I use the term tipping point, what I'm really saying is that um, if, if a large cohort of the population no longer identifies with the society it's in as the vehicle by which um, members of that cohort can sort of secure their own future, 
um, they will become radicalized and they become disillusioned. And they, um, you know, the, there will be a fracture in Irish society between, uh, a very major fracture between the haves and the have-nots. There's always, there's always a tension between the haves and the have-nots in any society. But any healthy society tries to uh, be inclusive and get the have-nots into the haves uh, tent, so to speak, uh, by, you know, social housing, affordable housing, uh, things like that, to, to give people, you know, a, an interest and a stake in the society they belong to. And I think that, uh, um, you know, these big vulture funds and the real estate investment trusts and uh, so the big, big money, big capital landlords, uh, we've, we've really divested ourselves of a lot of assets to the, um, to the uh, um, you know, the vulture fund type of investors. And uh, we are, by the same time, disinvesting, if I may use that phrase, the younger generation. But uh, having said that, Senator McDool, um, the radicalization, I think, is interesting. And I'd, be, I, I'd like to know your view on it. I understand why Senator, uh, sorry, uh, TD Paul Murphy gets elected in Tala. I understand that. Or I understand why Mick Barry of, of the Austerity Alliance gets elected in that portion of Cork, right? Yeah. At the same time, you have Richard Boyd Barrett getting elected in middle class uh, Dunleary at done. I appreciate it's not entirely middle class, but, but you wouldn't have thought it was a natural home for radical TDs of the left. Radicalization that you're talking about will not be amongst just the unemployed or the working class, as Joe Higgins was always keen to describe them. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, but, but when you look, George, at, say, for instance, uh, you know, centrist politics, I mean, if you don't want kind of yo-yo politics to go from radical left to radical right election after election and bounce hither and hither, if you want a broadly centrist approach to politics, what you have to ensure is that the centre actually does deliver. It's not simply a matter of the centre holding. It is the centre delivering in order to hold. And if the centre isn't, uh, you know, centre uh, politicians like Jim Gate and Fianfall are not actually um, delivering to um, a, a huge cohort of the population, then uh, I think you have um, the ingredients for a, a political kind of, not simply a realignment, but a kind of a fracture and a, and a, a breaking into smithereens of the political order. And that would suit some of the far-left politicians and is if we had a far right in Ireland, I believe we would suit them too. But we don't have a far right in Ireland yet. But, but we but have I mean, a yeah. But we, but we could, we could, we could, uh, you know, find ourselves um, uh, polarizing our society in a way that Dutch society has become polarized. Well, Finnegan is interesting. But for the first time in its history, it's re-elected. So it it is it two two terms, if you like, as government, albeit the second one in a minority situation. What yeah. what you then have a leadership election, which is which is more uh, the quality of the public relations by one candidate rather than the quality of one candidate. We now have fin- we have we have Murphy um, Minister Murphy talking about housing and 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 talking about ex- solutions that are never actually going to be implemented. Uh, We have numbers in health, uh, people disenfranchised in the health system, which are dramatic. So where do we go from that? Like, Can I just remind you? Take take a look, say, George, at Owen Murphy's dilemma. I mean, he's handed um, uh, halfway through the life of uh, this does 
he's handed the uh, job that um, uh, Simon Coveney was attempting to do in relation to housing. But I mean, one of the points I was making in the article is that all of the solutions that Simon Coveney was working on really are um, were kind of uh, sticking plaster solutions. You know, what is needed is a really determined effort by government to increase supply. And not just supply in sort of, you know, in uh, far-flung outskirts of greater Dublin in Kildare and places like that. What you need is uh, mechanisms to get a home building happening in our city centres. And the market by itself cannot achieve that. I mean, if you go back over the history of Dublin, go back over the history of Paris, um, uh, market forces left to themselves simply don't produce the uh, don't produce great cities, don't produce uh, homes in cities, because uh, the uh, economics are, are stacked against that. What you need is an interventionist uh, agency which will assemble sites, redesign streets, take entire derelict areas, and rebuild them. And that requires um, a much more radical vision that, than either um, uh, than either uh, um, Owen Murphy or indeed um, uh, Simon Coveney. Yeah, so uh, all right. But one of the criticisms I know is going to happen after you and I finish this conversation is they will say Michael McDoom and George had a nice chat about the problem, but they didn't actually come up with any solutions. Now, I have been suggesting a solution, and it, it's this. We have uh, funds, significant funds, uh, in the hands of NAMA. Um, we have uh, um, a, a, an opportunity now to engage in major rebuilding of our inner cities, particular Dub- particularly Dublin. Um, it's all very well to say, you know, that the city council or the public bodies have, have land which they haven't used. Yes, they do. But, I mean, uh, there are entire areas in south inner city Dublin which, are, which need to be redeveloped. You know, they are semi-derelict or run down uh, and the like. And what is needed for that are regeneration agencies. Theoretically, George, uh, Dublin City Council could do that. They have all the powers. They could, they could CTO an entire city block and say, we're going to rebuild this. And there is no constitutional objection to that as long as they pay compensation to the existing but Dublin City Council, I have to say, Senator McDougall, Dublin City Council is more interested in flying Palestinian flags over City Hall or putting in <laughs> cycle lanes. I mean, no. I mean, I know I'm on my hobby horse, but well, never... Well, uh, well, but, I, I, have, I have some sympathy with you. They have over 6,000 employees. And, you know, when you look to them as the planners of a new city and look at the horrible HQ they designed for themselves and only built half of it, Wood Key... You know, it's it's a pretty. Uh, they, you wouldn't have huge confidence in them uh, as an agency but, to re- rebuild streets uh, or okay. take that kind of uh, take that task. But in the last, all right. But in the last couple of years, I've been in Paris. I've been in Frankfurt. I, I've been uh, in Vienna. I've been, uh, and I won't, I won't go on with the list. But yeah. I've been in cities across Europe. Have all managed the idea of regeneration. Even New York. I mean, parts yeah. of New York that you and I wouldn't have walked down in daylight, let alone nighttime, uh, yeah. are today thriving places where where people are living. So how did all these cities do it? And well, we're still screwing well, around. Well, if you, but George, if you look at, if you look, say, at Paris, as you mentioned, I mean, uh, Haussmann redesigned Paris. Uh, and uh, the whole of Paris was rebuilt uh, to a plan. 
and you know all of these magnificent buildings and magnificent boulevards all the buildings on them were built to a plan they had to conform to certain criteria so that they, you had the magnificent outcomes in dublin i mean all the best parts of dublin um were uh, designed by the wide street commissioners um in in the city center and uh, that was that that body existed for 100 years and did that what we are facing here is um, a, a system of local government that is, for some reason, incapable of actually re- regenerating its cities and is dependent or ho- thinks it's dependent on market forces to achieve regeneration. Market forces never built Paris in its present form. Market forces didn't, uh, didn't build um, Frankfurt in its present form. You have to have um, centralized uh, planning and you have to have agencies which can and drive the whole regeneration process. I was reading about market forces just before you go. I was reading about market forces this week um, where the suggestion by the politicians was that market forces, not government intervention, would solve the problem. That was the Great Famine. So that kind of uh, made me think market forces don't work. Well, I mean... uh just go back over any uh, any great um, uh, the history of any great city anywhere in the world and ask was this built by market forces alone and the answer is no not even in in new york where uh, capital is king uh, uh, was new york uh, built by market forces alone they had their zoning they had their uh, uh, regeneration programs they have a lot of things like that and we need them in dublin and the big thing george is to get building happening in dublin to have apartment buildings, to have a housing housing schemes, to to do to do at, uh, for Dublin what is what is uh, absolutely necessary. There are huge swathes of inner city Dublin which are run down, derelict, and falling apart. And there are landlords that have locked in a kind of a, a civil war but, uh, between the ground landlord and the people who hold in, intermediate uh, leasehold interests and the people who are actually occupying the premises. Yeah, it's sort of uh, playing a, a game of chess against each other over 20, 25 years to assemble a site. That kind of system will not bring about the home building that's needed in, in, in central city Dublin. And uh, um, until Owen Murphy uh, grasps that fact and does something about it, um, uh, I think that uh, you're going to, the, the government's initiative on housing is going to find more and more people in unsustainable um, uh, greenfield housing developments you know, in, in Kildare, Wicklow, and uh, and in Mead. That isn't the way to rebuild Dublin, and it's not the way to uh, bring down rents in Dublin. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, the independent member uh, of Shannon and Michael McDool. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Thanks, Ross. Well, forgive me if I use the magic word Brexit, but it seems we can't open a newspaper or listen to a radio program without the words Brexit being used. And of course, the reason is that no country is going to be affected more, and I suspect affected more negatively than, in fact, Ireland. So that's why we're interested in it, and that's why I'm perfectly happy to do it on the radio. Now, when I get an opportunity to speak uh, to one of the great intellects from the London School of Economics, who knows all about it, uh, then it's even better. 
And therefore, the Professor Emeritus from the London School of Economics, regular contributor, Gwydion Prince, who is perfect in every way, except he's a Brexiteer. George, thank you for that wonderful introduction. We'll correct a few more of the errors as we go on. All right, well, correct them. I mean, yes, this is, okay. to the be honest... The most important thing that's wrong yeah. in your introduction is you're rushing to judgment. And I think what we need to talk to, about today is the way that people are rushing to judgment, because you say you presume negatively. I think you're very unwise to make that presumption, because it is certainly the case that the United Kingdom is going to leave the European Union. We have many people who these days I see are called Ramonas or Romaniacs in the United Kingdom who would try to frustrate the will of the people expressed in last year's referendum. Uh, but I don't think that that will succeed. And so what we need to discuss today, I think, is why there is so much noise and smoke going on which says, oh, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, maybe it'll this way, maybe it'll be that way. What does that tell us? Well, I tell you what it tells us. It tells us that we have a very weak prime minister. Uh, it tells us that um, the the British, the Cameron government, uh, went into the referendum not remotely believing uh, that the result that did happen would happen. Um, and uh, they weren't prepared for it. And then suddenly the will of the British people, which I'm perfectly happy to accept, slim and all as it was, I'm perfectly happy to accept it. But the British government then said, oh, shoot, what do we do now? And they don't know what to do because there's 26 countries over there waiting for them in the long grass who are going to exact as high a price uh, as they possibly can. Okay, let's, let's just alter our perspective a little bit here. Um, firstly, let's agree about something. Yes, uh, the British establishment was taken by surprise. And the interesting analogy, which isn't discussed enough, I think, is Norway. Because you'll remember, and many listeners will remember, that the Norwegians were given a referendum on whether to join the European Union. And they said no. And they said no, by the way, by a very substantial margin. And that infuriated the Norwegian establishment, uh, because the Norwegian establishment, for all sorts of reasons, including some not particularly honorable ones, like uh, all those nice tax-free salaries they might get when they got jobs in Brussels, wanted to be in the European Union. So what did they do? They produced this thing which creates a situation that is by no means ideal for Norway, where they are subject to many of the rules and regulations, but they have no word in their actual negotiations. So they're sort of half in, half out. And this is the model which the Ramonas or the Romaniacs in Britain are trying to get the government to accept so that Britain will be in a position where we are under the power still of the European Commission, even though we're not able to influence it. And you know, George, something which happened whilst I was just recently away overseas, which shocked me a great deal, was that I saw a report of an opinion poll which suggested that among those who'd voted Remain, one in five were prepared for Britain to be damaged economically, culturally, significantly, in order to teach a lesson to the people who'd voted to leave the European Union. Now, that's an absolutely uh, right. extraordinary thing. Look, Gwyn, hold on a minute. You know I love you dearly. 
You know I'm in awe of your intellect, but you're talking through your external orifice, right? Talking about Norway, which is irrelevant in the case of us Irish. There's about a half a dozen Norwegians somewhere in London. There are millions of us over there. And so Britain to us is huge. Our agri-industry has a huge dependence on Britain. Like, I, to be honest, Gwen. I'm Irish. This is an Irish radio station. I don't care where the hell Britain go. I'm not remotely interested whether you stay or go. But I am interested in what happens to us. It's my well, come with us, my friend. That is actually uh, the answer to your Correct. Gwyn, that is the one area that you and I are in agreement. We should be... With our, 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 I mean, you're Anglo-Saxons and we're Celts and all that sort of good stuff, but Scottish Celts are okay with you, Welsh Celts are okay with you, we'll be okay with you. And um, we will have, we will have a re, an, an economy we can then try, as we've done since independence, we can then piggyback on the British economy with the deals it does with Australia, Canada and whoever the heck else. Now, my dear friend, you're talking good sense. I know we am. No, no, you don't. Sometimes you talk out of your exterior orifice, let me tell you, and many of your listeners know that. They even email you and text you about it. I, I've, heard, I've heard them say so. But look, joking apart... No, I'm not joking. Course, I'm deadly have, serious. Listen, listen. We are going... I think that what is going to happen is that as far as our countries are concerned, because we are so naturally, um, uh, amicably and tightly linked economically and culturally... Uh, we'll have a special relationship. But as I've said to you before on the program, to pick up one of the other things you said in the introduction, which is correct, we are now in a situation that wasn't anticipated because Mrs. May's throw of the dice uh, went so badly wrong. Um, And so I say uh, that my judgment is that this makes it more likely that we will leave without a negotiated settlement. Uh, And actually, as many listeners may know, if they've heard our conversations, uh, the professor is not unhappy about that. I think that in many ways, if you look at what the EU tried to do when they did over the Greeks, no deal is actually better than any Yeah, but, but Quinn, that's fine, because like everybody listens to your accent and there says, there goes a British Tory. And I mean, this is fine for you British Tories. Like, it's us. We, the real danger here is that British, Britain leaves, and Britain actually might do quite well. I don't know, I'm not an economist like you, but they might do quite well. The problem is, I can find no scenario that we come out of this doing well. And not but only George, that. Then you're not looking, look, you're, you're, uh, all you're our economists, narrow, no, Gwen, Gwen, Gwen. Well, you're too Gwen. narrow in the way that you're looking at this. You're not being sufficiently ambitious, not in a dramatic sense, but in a modest sense, George. And, and that surprises me because you're a man who has a life full of daring and success. Now, what, hear what I said. I think, I'm sorry, that sounds a little impolite, but um, you forced me to it. What <laughs> I said a few moments ago is that I suspect that we will come up with a special tailor-made relationship across the Irish Sea. And that is a perfectly sensible and negotiable outcome. And if we leave the European Union uh, with a clean break, either because it's negotiated or because we simply leave and then we start to trade with the European Union members on WTO terms, then we have it within our sovereign power, your country and my country, to make our own arrangements. And that, if you see what's been said by the 
Brexit uh, department recently. This seems to be one of the ideas um, that is really quite uh, seriously being considered. But there's one point which we ought to put to people, which is that they will have read, as I'm sure uh, you have, that we've got an enormous amount of quite um, vituperative uh, smoke being blown in mm, Britain. I agree. You know, we've got this, this uh, young whippersnapper who worked for David Davis, the Brexit secretary, who's now stopped working for him and has decided um, that he's going to tell the world that David Davis is a drunk and a bully and all sorts of other things. Now, I'm not interested in what these people say. I'm interested in the fact that they say it. And you have a good understanding of history. And you know that when people talk in these extravagant ad hominem personalized ways, it suggests that the position that they hold isn't anything like a secure They're losing the argument. They're losing the argument. I totally agree. But I want to bring you back again. Every, uh, like every analysis of Ireland post Brexit is, is that our economy will be weakened by whatever percentage the different experts come up with. But everybody is in agreement that Brexit will damage the economy. Meanwhile, the good ship optimistic Ireland sails on, Mm -hmm. confident that they can give tax breaks, that they can spend money like water, that growth of 4% into the farthest and future is guaranteed and we are making no provision for the rainy day if Brexit is a rainy day. And that's my problem. And okay. it's no matter so look, no you can talk not- no, you can talk Norway, Switzerland or whoever you like. The next time you get on your horse and you try and cross the border uh, after a hard Brexit, a horse is a very important one because the horse industry will be monumentally damaged by a hard Brexit. And you're a horse lover and you know that. Well, I'm not only a horse lover, as uh, listeners will know. Uh, the man who's sitting in the field, actually he's in his stable now having his breakfast, is, uh, is an Irishman from Kilkenny. Um, and so I'm very much uh, a supporter of Irish horses. But I don't believe that what you just said is true. And what I urge you, my friend, is just dial back a little bit on this uh, premature anxiety. Because at the moment... The simple truth is that you don't know, I don't know, nobody knows exactly what all of this smoke that we were just talking about really means, except that it indicates that the Ramonas in Britain fear that they are not going to succeed in overturning the democratic will of the referendum, which I think is correct, by the way. So as somebody who, as you know, strongly supported that uh, leave position, I'm not, um, I'm not burying my, my hands, my head in my hands. I'm not saying that I'm uh, desperate, that I think that we're being betrayed. I don't know at the moment. What I do know is that if there were to be a betrayal of the fundamental principles of a clean Brexit, which means that we return control of our borders, our laws, our economy to the sovereign control of this country, then there would be a very serious okay. reaction. All right. Finally, you, you, you make much capital about how, you know, all the people want to remain and just sorry, want to go. And even some of the remainers, one in five, might possibly accept it and so on. The one 
thing about this argument is it's not actually an economic argument. It is by people like you, but for the man in the street, the man on the Clapham omnibus, as a judge once described, the common British man, the man on the Clapham on omnibus doesn't want any foreigners. And what we're seeing in America and what we are seeing in, in Germany and Austria and Hungary and Poland and indeed Ireland is the rise of xenophobia. And therefore, what Brexit, the reason Brexit will survive, it will re- survive on the, on the basis that all the foreigners will be kept out. George, you missed, you missed your profession. You should have been a QC, you know. Um, because that was a nice piece up until the point where you suddenly let it slide into talking about extravagant things like xenophobia. So let's dial it back again. Let's dial it back, George. What is the case, most certainly, is that people in this country, many people who had not voted for many, many years, came out last year in the referendum because they had a sense in their guts that they had lost control of their country to foreigners, and they did not want that. And I agree with them on that. And I think that as a proud Irishman yourself, you would understand that. That's one of the reasons why your country is an independent and proud country of its own. So there's nothing unreasonable about that. There's nothing wrong about that. There's nothing immoral. Please don't tar that sentiment with uh, language which is extravagant and for many people hurtful. You use the word foreigners as well as me, interestingly, in your very notable uh, response. But listen, um, one thing is absolutely certain. You and I will be talking again. The good uh, Professor Emeritus at the London School of Economics, Gwydion Prince. Thank you, George, and I look forward to it. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Well, I've only got two words in Japanese, sayonara and banzai. But I got a new one today, and it's called karoshi. To explain the meaning of karoshi, I'm going all the way to Tokyo. David McNeil, he's a journalist, of course, with the Irish Times and The Economist. David, welcome to the program. Hi there, thanks for having me. What does karoshi mean? Well, karoshi is made up of the three Chinese characters, meaning over, work, and death. So it um, literally means you can die from overwork. As far as I'm aware, Japan is the only country in the world, or the only country I know of, that has a word uh, that means you can work yourself so hard that you die. And it's a real problem here. Um, Something like 2,000 people a year uh, die from uh, related causes from working too hard in Japan. That's the government estimate. Um, the, the, um, the way that they calculate this is they say that uh, karoshi is possible if an employee works for 100 hours or more of overtime per month. Uh, and if that sounds like a lot, um, about 1 million employees here put in at least 100 hours overtime a month. And there are extraordinary extreme cases. Um, one manager at a nuclear power plant last year worked 200 hours overtime a month and, uh, before killing himself. Um, so, um, so it is a real issue here. Uh, what about taking holidays? If they're doing all this work, they probably don't take holidays either, do they? Well, the sort of unusual thing about Japan is that if you look at uh, public holidays, on paper, Japan is about the same as most other advanced countries 
you know, it's about 16 days a year, something like that, of public holidays. But what makes Japan quite unusual is that people don't take their holidays. It's a real effort to get people to take them. I know very few people in Japan who, who go away, you know, as most Irish people do, for example, for a week or two uh, in a farm resort. That's just very, it's almost unheard of in, in Japan among working people, at least. You know, students and older people tend to go away for trips. But, um, um, but you know, people in the middle, the sort of ordinary salarymen, housewives, people with families and so on, very, very rarely take those kind of holidays. And it's a real effort to try to persuade them to take time off. Now, it's interesting that we are seeing a culture akin to this in Ireland where we are seeing people work increasingly later. They don't leave the office until the boss leaves, lest they be seen as slacking on the job. Uh, the incidence of leaving their telephones on 24-7, including when they go on holiday with the ubiquitous email and so on to boot. Um, this may not be a Japanese problem ultimately, and I'm not sure what the Irish word for karoshi is. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think for years, one of the things that makes Japan quite interesting is that um, it was always a sort of outlier, uh, or it always appeared to be the outlier in so many things. But what we see as, as, uh, as time goes on is that Japan is actually in some ways ahead of the rest of the world, in, in bad ways as well as good. And, and I think that, um, you know, as you said, this, this, um, um, this phenomenon of working times creeping up, of not being able to switch off, of being working at home, of hour, working hours creeping up and so on, uh, is not just a Japanese phenomenon. And, and I think that one reason is because um, you had just have pressure. You know, the reason why this system cut off, cut off in Japan is because in the post-war period, uh, Japan faced this competition to catch up with the West. And everybody was kind of pulled into that uh, struggle, if you like. And, and since 1990, when the economy uh, has crashed, now what they're trying to do is maintain living standards, you know, to just stay where they are with a shrinking population as well. That's Japan's other issue. Uh, and what that means is there's, there's more pressure on people uh, to stay in the office late and more peer pressure. You know, that's a very interesting sort of element of all this is that uh, in many cases, it's, it's other people feeling that they cannot go home because they don't want to let the team down. And what you say in Japan when you leave work is, which literally means, I'm sorry for going home first. Um, and that's something that maybe we can understand, not just in Japan, but around the world. The other interesting thing creating the pressure in Japan, which has resonance for us in Ireland, is the idea of sort of part-time or contract-only workers coming in, thereby putting pressure on people on the on the, the, the full-time employee as well. Yeah, I, I mean the the statistic in Japan is that um, you know a country which traditionally is is supposed to have about uh, is supposed to have lifetime employment, I should say. You know, Japan is famous for uh, people joining companies after they leave school or university and staying with them their whole lives. But that system only applies to about a third of the population, and it's shrinking. And what we've seen in the last two decades is a much larger proportion of the population, uh, about 40% now, being in uh, part-time or temporary employment or just a regular employment. Uh, and that, as you said, is creating all these other dynamics, one of which is, is kind of competition, you know, to everybody feels that they have to kind of work hard or keep their heads down and not cause trouble. And um, there's all these kind of interesting uh, 
uh, uh, side stories from that, one of which is falling consumption. Japan has had for years deflation, you know, the fact that people just won't go out and spend their money. Uh, and then you get all these harebrained schemes to try and get people to, to leave early and spend their money. The latest one is, is that premium Friday where once a month on a Friday they tell workers to go home at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, the, the thinking being that they will go and spend money in department stores, go drinking, have a meal or whatever it is. And, and um, of course, that hasn't panned out at all because most companies say that they cannot afford to let people go home. Now, karoshi is the Japanese word for dying of overwork, and David McNeil explained it to me. But if thousands of people, men and women, are dying from overwork, either by suicide, heart attack, or stroke, David, there must, like, the, the, the Minister for Health in the Japanese government must be trying to think up schemes to, to, to reduce that pressure. Well, uh, yes, they, indeed. I mean, there, there are, um, there's constant talk, uh, certainly for the last two years, like real talk about what they're going to do with this problem. Um, uh, the sort of, you know, the martyr of this uh, process, if you like, is a woman called Matsuri Takahashi. She was working for uh, Japan's biggest ad agency, Dentsu. Uh, and uh, she committed suicide on Christmas Day 2015. She was working about 100 hours overtime a month. Um, at the point where she committed suicide, she was getting about 10 hours sleep a week. And what makes that case kind of un- interesting and unusual is that although this has been going on for many years, uh, she kind of lived out her moods, if you like, in public because she was tweeting and sending mails to her, her mother and her friends, which leaked to the press. And that has sort of triggered this moral panic about what are we going to do. And one of the things the government is trying to do at the moment is to introduce legislation that would uh, sort of introduce mandatory, if you like, uh, penalties for companies that hire people too long. Now, the problem is that that has run straight into the business community, which says that they want exceptions. So a government panel has determined that an employee's overtime should be kept to 100 100 hours in any single month, and the average of no more than 80 hours a month over a two- to six-month period. Um, but that even that seems extraordinarily high. You know, 100 hours of overtime a month is, is, is quite a lot. And even that, the business community does not want strict lim- uh, limits on overtime because it thinks that it damages competitiveness. And you have this problem in Japan, as I said, of falling, uh, uh, falling population, which means you have fewer people being asked to do more work. Finally, though, um, because I want to talk to the team here on High Noon about their lack of work ethic, um, I was thinking of introducing this. Sorry, I'm the first to go home early. How do I say that in Japanese? Osakini. You can say Osakini, which just means I'm going first. And, and then if you say after that, uh, that means I'm sorry, or it's rude of me to go home first. So if you can get that all in one, that's full, you're doing pretty well. Osakini okay. Sherimas. Uh, How's that sound? Keep trying. I, I borrow that from Marlon Brando in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, David. Don't uh, work too hard. Don't work too hard. That was David McNeil, a journalist with the Irish Times and The Economist, based in Tokyo. If you think it's a Japanese problem, don't be surprised. Just look around you in the workplace. But when I uh, when the show's over, I'm going to turn around to the team and I'm going to say, Sakini, Sherry Mass. And I'm out of here like a hot potato.
High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. All right, welcome back. And uh, as we roll to a close at two o'clock, what better way to roll to a close than my favorite music man, if that's not a cue for a movie, Bill Hughes. Hello, George. (laughs) Favorite. That's a word you don't throw around very often. No, but you call it essential. But I, I, the reason I call it favourite is because it, it, none of them are. If if some of the ones you come up to me, they're not essential to me. Like so, you know, mm. I listen because I'm a very patient and and well mannered type of person. But like in the style of Donald Trump, of course yeah. you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you come up. How with does it some... relate to me? How does yeah. it relate to me? It's yeah. all about me. me. Yeah, <laughs> me. So, yeah, I've well. got a song from your heyday oh, today. Oh, uh, your heyday, uh, early sixties, just when you're having the crack, um, nineteen sixty-four to be precise. Mm. Very interesting year, sixty-four. Mm-hmm. And a young British band who were part of what was known in America as the British Invasion. And who at the time would have been one of the leaders of the British. Well, as long as it's not the Beatles now, we're okay. It's Herman's Hermits. Ah, yeah. And their first, number one, I'm into something good. I loved it. You liked it? Oh, yeah. I liked it a lot. Strangely enough, it was written by Carole King and Jerry Goffin. (laughs) (laughs) Was it? And it was an American written song. In the Brill Building. In the Brill Building. And the thing was that... The British invasion were coming and all of the artists who were coming from Britain wrote their own material. So as a result, they were all coming into America with not just British voices, but British lyrics and British music. Which might have been understandable to the Americans. Well, what happened was... Very crossed the Mersey. The terror that went through the Brill Building oh, right, was okay. that they were in fear of obsolescence. And so because... All of the Lieber and Stollers and, you know, all the people who were writing the hit songs for everybody, uh, the Neil Sadakas and the Neil Diamonds, and the, everybody was getting a bit worried. So Carol King and Jerry Goffin were only too thrilled when a song that had been recorded just as a kind of a demo that had a limited release by Earl Jean of the Cookies. Uh, the, Earl Jean of the uh, Cookies. Uh, yeah, yeah, an American group. All so right. they had I Am Into Something Good. But Herman's Hermits heard it recorded it, it was their first single and bam, it just took off. Went to number one in the UK, topped the charts in America and uh, I I just, it's a great song. Now, Herman's Hermits, they were discovered by a guy called Harvey Lisberg and he was based in in, uh, Manchester. He was a tremendous uh, music figure at the time. I'd be pilloried for this, but it is actually quite an important statement to make. I suspect he was Jewish. He he was very prominently Jewish. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, because they had such, like if you look at Hollywood, if you look at the music industry in America, Mm. if you look at the music industry in Britain, Mm. the Jewish uh, influence was huge. Oh yeah, and and Harvey Lisberg yeah. was kind of a legend because he ah. was discovering talent all the time. Right, and he had a great stable. He heard uh, Herman and the Hermits as they were originally known, 
He sent a return plane ticket to London <laughs> for Mickey Most to fly up to Bolton in to those days, them. 1964, to hear them. Mickey Most was the Midas of the time. You know, whatever he touched turned to gold. And he came up from London and he became the group's record producer. He controlled the band's output. He emphasised non-threatening, clean-cut image. Um, and though the band originally played R&B numbers, he said, no, it's going to be pop music. And so they then went on to have an incredible career because they... There's they, one other one now, and you're going to tell me what it is that I really yeah. liked as well, when you tell me the other hits they had. Well, I'm going to tell you that yeah. they had... They, they had number ones in America right. with Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. Oh, yeah. Uh, Henry VIII, I Am, I Am. Yeah. Two novelty songs that I cannot stand. Yeah. But then they had hits, and I know the one that you loved. Yeah. There's a kind of hush all over the world. Exactly. You You're bang on. So that, was a, that on. was a huge hit for them yeah. as well. But Hermes Hermes, they, they had uh, four Top three hits in the US in 1965. The two number ones I just mentioned, and then Can't You Hear My Heartbeat, and then uh, Silhouettes. And okay. these were all big hits for them. They then went on to have a whole list of, of scenes. They, they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, the Dean Martin Show, the Jackie Gleason Show. Um, and while they were huge in America, Britain kind of went off them. Really? Yeah. And then... America went off them by 1967 and then Britain turned on to them. So <laughs> they were, it, it was, it was wow. a peculiar time. Could I ask you something? Mm, yeah. What's this fellow's name anyway? Okay. I presume his name wasn't Herman. No, his real name was Peter Noon. Uh, was the, was the right, main guy. Peter, Peter Noon. Noon. Yeah. And he had played the part of, and I don't know if you'll remember this, but he was a, a fair clough in Coronation Street. Uh, Coronation Street did not strike my okay. radar. The only time Coronation Street struck my radar, do you remember there was a slut in it, and she <laughs> she was with. Don't the, use the word slut, but I know was, what you mean. She was with her with the father and the son. Do you remember her? Her name was Pat Phoenix. Was it? No, I no? remember Pat Phoenix. Pat Phoenix was a buxom actress. She was, yeah. Buxom. I like buxom. Elsie yeah. um, Tanner was the character yeah, she no, played. No, but this no. is later on. Oh, later there on. There was a fellow running a factory. Oh, Mike Baldwin. Mike Baldwin. Yeah. Yeah. You were obviously an expert on coronation. There was a period of my life where I had nothing to do, <laughs> so I watched it. But then I got over it and I moved yeah, on. Well, anyway, yeah. I, I watched it while your one was in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Right. But to go back to the bad period in America oh, when yeah. Herman's Hermits were there, they did an unforgivable thing and then it, they had a hit with it and it was, they got George Formby's song Leaning on a Lamppost at the corner of the street and they turned that into a hit as well. But they used to fake the Mancunian really? accent. They used to play it up in oh, the recording right. to make them seem more cockney, more uh, interesting. Yeah, Coming on the wave of Oliver. Right. You know. Right. Uh, now that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Because this does demonstrate a slight weakness. Now, there are very few weaknesses, but I think I could safely describe that with my love of Greek uh, mythology as your Achilles heel. I mean, not to play, that we haven't played a George Formby in our long relationship together. I can't imagine why I would do that. 
to the people of Ireland. I don't know <laughs> to the ears of Ireland that I hold Gracie so Fields? dear. Gracie Fields, uh, it's a stretch. Is but it? It's a, a bit, yeah. Norman Wisdom. I listen. You're leaving me. I, I I can understand his fall down humor, but I can't imagine why I would play a song by Norman. He had a hit for No, I know he had a few. He had a few and a, a, a lonely little boy and yeah. I'm a heartless uh, heart yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah. So no, I couldn't. All right, let's so, get back g- to g- Peter okay. Noon. Okay. Well, Peter Noon. The reason they got their name Herman's Hermits was because uh, the guy who ran the pub that they used to drink in. Uh, when they went in, said that Peter Noon, who was Peter Novak originally, uh, but Peter Noon, that he looked like Sherman in Rocky and Bullwinkle. Do you remember Rocky and Bullwinkle, the cartoon? That passed me by as well. That was a cartoon. Okay, so Sherman became Herman and then Herman's Hermits and that was it. But now the big thing was, right, okay, he was the spokesman for the group. He ended up on the cover of Time magazine. You're kidding me. What age was he? The same age as Leo Varadkar, who was on the cover of Time magazine last week. When Herman's Hermits went to number one, yeah. Peter Noon was 15. Go away. He was 15. Go away. I tell you. And that's what's he extraordinary. He was not. He was. He was 15 years of age and he was on the cover of Time magazine. And they were number one. number one in the charts in the UK, number three in the charts that week The one week we're going America. to listen to now. The one we're going to, the, yes, absolutely. There's it's, a kind of hush. No, I'm into something good. <laughs> I'm into something good. Are we going to listen I'm, to it? No, well, I'm hoping Quilly by mistake is going to play There's a Kind of well, Hush. Well, can play There's a Kind of Hush as well later on, but I'm into something good. No, I'm well. into something good is great. I really like Herman and the Hermits. I and, always and, say. And a big thing to make, big point to make make is that Herman's Hermits are playing all the instruments bar the piano on this because that's something I'll tell you about after we hear the song. Oh, give it a lash, Quilly. Oh 
see her next week And she told me I could I asked to see her and she told me I could Wow. Oh, smashing. Now, a couple of things. Uh, Murren uh, sent me a text. I kissed a girl called Murren first. One of the uh, early girls I kissed when I came to Dublin after, like after Cork. Mm-hmm. Anyway, like she, it? I don't know whether it's the same Murren, but like Murren anyway said, uh, I love my sentimental friend. Oh, very good. Yeah. yeah. Then George Formby lived on Westminster Road in Leafy's Fox Rock for a short time. And where are they now? Where are who? The Herman's Hermits. That's what I'm going to tell you about. Oh, ben. sorry. Okay, so Peter Noon left the band in 1971. There was a lot of acrimony. Uh, they all fell They're out. They're always easy. They fell out very badly. The band got back together in 1973 mm. without him yeah. to headline a British Invasion tour 10 years sort of after the British oh, yeah. Invasion, which culminated in a standing room only performance at Madison Square Garden. Now, Go away. Standing room only. Madison so, Square in Garden. Madison Square Garden. And then... Even Eamon Coughlin couldn't fill Madison Square Garden. <laughs> Go on. So then the Irish tenors did. But then uh, they, they got back together in the 80s to be the opening act for the Monkeys reunion tour. The Herm- Hermits yeah. Hermits did. Yeah. So Hermits Hermits really were good. Keith Hopp. Hopwood on rhythm guitar and backing vocals, Carl Green on lead guitar and backing vocals, Alan Wrigley on bass, Steve Titterington on drums and Peter Noon on lead vocals. And the the thing about it was... right. Ev- sorry, everybody is saying, why aren't you mentioning No Milk today? No Milk? I, I have a list of songs <laughs> that they, uh, people are People are jumping the gun. All right, but so. here's a great one from Pat in Limerick. He says, is my memory playing tricks? But did Herman's Hermit's play at uh, Nixon's daughter's 21st. I have no idea. Confirm or deny? I have no I did not listen to whatever <laughs> you could say about him. That was a marvellous interpretation of uh, Richard Nixon. Go on. Uh, no, I mean, there were, there were so many things that, that happened to them. And at that time, it was normal practice that musicians that a lot of producers felt that the musicianship among the bands that were appealing to the teeny bops, boppers, that they weren't good enough to record their yeah. instruments. So Mickey Most did mostly record with bands, even the Yardbirds when he was recording. Them, and he wouldn't let Jimmy Page record. record uh, Jimmy Page did record, sorry, on that. But Jimmy Page actually became one of the session music, musicians for Herman's Hermits, as did, as did John Paul Young. But Herman's Hermits were one of the few bands who all played their instruments on all of their number one hits. They also wrote a load of songs and the songs that they wrote ended up being B-sides on songs that went to number one. And I don't know if you remember, but at that time, if you had the B-side on a song, you'd also get the same amount of revenue as if you had the A side on a song. Yeah. So they would write the B sides for their songs and get the same amount of money right, as the people okay. who were getting their All A right, sides. Okay, okay. So um they 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 had like 
there was a lot of stuff that they used, but they did a lot of their recordings using either two or three microphones only in okay. a row. Now, where are they now? They're all dead where and buried. They're, no, they're, they're not. They? Peter Noon is, is he's married to Mireille Strasser, is her name. They got married in uh, the, on the 5th of November 1968. So next year, 50 years married. Uh, they live, yes, he's a naturalized US citizen. Uh, they live in Santa Barbara in California and they have a daughter, Natalie. She's currently a singer songwriter. Um, when they started covering other people's records, like they did Ray Davies of the Kinks. They sang his song Dandy, uh, in 1966. And then Graham Gouldman, uh, this is the song No Milk Today. Yeah. That Graham Goldman went on to be 10cc with Kevin. Uh, you know, he, he was part of all that. that. I and don't like the way you keep looking at me and kind of referring to me as if I know what the hell you're talking about <laughs> when you do Kevin Goldman of 10cc. And then George is supposed to nod sagely as if he knows what the heck you're talking about. Well, No Milk Today became a hit for them in late I remember 1966. I remember and, well. And the B-side was written by Peter Noon and it was called My Reservation's Been Confirmed. <laughs> so the... For the US release of No Milk Today, the American company decided to put out There's a Kind of Hush. And the DJs in the radio stations preferred There's a Kind of Hush to No Milk Today Ah. and started to play that more. And as you know, in those days, radio play contributed to to, uh, getting a... Do you know what I've always regretted, right? What's that? When you were talking about radio playing in the 60s, the DJs used to get a ton of money to play the record. It was called Payola. Yeah. Yeah. It's a shame that went out of fashion in news talk, like that nobody has given me a ton of money to talk to you about No Milk Today. Do you know what I mean? No, but they're just giving you a ton of money just to talk to me in general. I mean, that's where the money's coming Well, <laughs> as you know, tons have now been replaced by kilograms yeah. and things like that. So it's moot, really, what a ton of money is anymore. Yeah, it's probably not worth it. anything. It's just a cubic you know? metre, yeah. Yeah, but, but I have another question for oh, you. What's that? No Gracie Fields, no George Formby. I have another name well, we'll for you. I have want, another name for yeah, you. I have another that? name for you. Mm-hmm. Lonnie Donegan. We have had Lonnie Donegan. Excuse me. Have we? Yeah. What was the song? Old Man's a Dustman. Oh, did we? Yeah, we did. We did. We did. Does your lips? No, not your lipstick. Does Does your your chewing chewing gum lose its its flavour on on the the bedpost overnight? overnight. Yeah. If you're a dirty stopper. But the best one ever. (laughs) The best one ever. And the great Grand Gooley Dam. That's all I can remember the song. Do you remember what the name of it I'm was? I'm incredibly happy that that's all you can remember. And, it sounds the great, and he used to sing like this. Used to say, and the great Grand Gooley Dam. Will somebody he, tell me what the name of the song is? Just, and the great Grand Gooley Dam. Just hearing George Hook saying Gooley <laughs> in the middle of a Thursday afternoon is enough. Herman's Hermits, just for the record, went on to sell 60 million recordings. 60 million. So it was like they had 14 gold singles, seven gold albums, and twice in their career, Cashbox named them Entertainer of the Year in terms of the gross they were making. Here's something I put to you, right? With your your vast knowledge Mm -hmm. and superior to my own. (laughs) 
I bet you there'd be very few people, even people of the era, would realise that Herman and the Hermits had as big a career as they had. No. That they sold as many records as they did and clearly made as much money as they did. Because yeah. this thing about the British invasions you talk about, like people are thinking about Jerry and the Pacemakers and, and obviously the Stones. Freddie and the, the Dreamers. Beatles, Freddie and the Dreamers. They're thinking about all them. And Herman and I bet you it'd be really interesting they mightn't come up in conversation talking to a lot of people of the era. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Well, the thing too is that Peter Noon was very versatile and he had studied drama um, at uh, um, the College, uh, the Manchester School of Music and he won the Outstanding Young Musician Award when he was only like 13 and that's when he got into Coronation Street. But uh, he, like, he started f- starring as an actor he did the American version of the Canterville Ghost. He then, Hallmark's Hall of Fame, did a movie of Pinocchio, a live action movie of Pinocchio. And he got the lead role right. as Pinocchio. He also starred in the movies for MGM of Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter, Hold On, and When Boys yeah. Meet Now, I have another line from And the Great Columbia <laughs> River. That's the other one. And the Great Columbia River. Dog and the Great Big Dog with a Lonnie bone. Don, there should be a song about that. I don't know. Oh. Sometimes I come in here and I'm terrified about what you're going to come out with. <laughs> the, so, uh, the listener <laughs> says, I don't know what the name of the Lonnie Donegan song was. Was, but the record label had a pink colour. Well, there you go. Well, there you go. Well, if you want to see Herman's Hermits today, they're still touring. Are but they? No, they, they, they but are. But they're sons and name. daughters. No, the only original member is the drummer, Walt Whit- Whitwam. And he is sitting behind the drum, still banging out. I'm Walter Whitman good. is long dead. No, this guy, Walt. Walter <laughs> Whitman is long dead. He was one of America's great, Ma- America's great poets. Barry Whitwam. Uh, Barry Whitwam was out but there But the, the other thing about Lonnie Donegan mm. was uh, It's the Battle of New Orleans. Do you I remember don't that? Know. And the Brit- Let the British keep I wonder has Mr. Culligan found there's a kind of hush <laughs> that we can just hush you we'll up. Finish. <laughs> <laughs> we'll finish maybe hushing George up. Can we find a piece of hush or not, Mick? Oh, Mehal, what a star. Like, Mehal Quilligan is not just your ordinary sound engineer. He is a sound engineer par excellence. Hush, whatever you call it. There's a kind of hush 